0: All right, good morning to you all. Let's see, okay, there we go, good morning. If you would turn to Philippians chapter four. Thank you very much, worship team. Thank you, Mark, appreciate the sharing time. Philippians four um, is a break from the book of Acts. I wanted to take a little break just one Sunday to give us some encouragement It's actually related to what we've been talking about in Acts when we think about the issue of sharing the gospel, because one of the things that can hinder us in sharing and taking a stand for Christ is anxiety, and hopefully you'll see why that might be the case in different ways, and so Philippians 4 is what we want to look at this morning. I don't know if anybody here has any worries, anything that you might be a little anxious about. There's a song that I think we've all heard about, if we have not actually heard, entitled Don't Worry, Be Happy. Interestingly enough, when it was written and sung way back, I think it was in 88, it actually was the song of the year. And I don't know if that's because of just the way it was done, because it was a cappella, or if there was... Something about the message. People just like the idea of not worrying and just being happy. And yet, if you listen to the song, he's talking about, if well, if you can't pay your rent, or, you know, somebody's going to take you to court, or if you don't have certain things you need, he says, just don't worry, just be happy. Um, And the whole idea is, uh, in the song, that you just kind of make things worse. You make it double, he says, um, but he says, you know, if you get worried, just worry, just call me. Just call him, the singer of the song, and, you know, I'll, I'll make you happy. Which raises the question, uh, when I get worried or I have anxiety, who do I call? Do I call Bobby McFerrin, the singer of this song? Um, but at the end, he talks about um, not bringing everybody down, you know, with your worry, which is an interesting thing because he's actually highlighting the fact that Our anxiety and our worry impacts other people. And so the song is interesting. There's some insight in the song. But he says at the end, this will soon pass. As if uh, worry really isn't something that um, need be um, fought. It just needs to be dismissed. And yet there's really more to it than that. But I bring up that song because of the title, "Don't Worry, Be Happy," in light of the fact that Philippians four could be summarized that way if you think about it in terms of the content of Philippians Four and the context, because it's much more involved than the song talks about. This week, I thought about uh, the issue of worry because um, my family have a history of worriers in my family, so I'm very acquainted. With worry. And I was just reflecting on worry and you could say in one sense, um, one kind of worrier is just common worriers. And what I mean by that is all of us worry and find ourselves anxious about something at some time. So you could say that worry is a very common thing. And yet some of us tend to be more circumstantial in our worry. Uh, We tend to be those who aren't worried all the time, but in certain circumstances, we tend to be more anxious or, or worried. Then there are others who are more chronic. It's Worry is kind of like a, a daily thing for them. There are also those who are kind of subsets of all of that, who are, who look around themselves and and are condemning those who aren't worried. Because why aren't you worrying? You know, don't you care? As if worry... And appropriate care are the same thing. And then finally, there's a category of creative worriers. Even when there's nothing to worry about, they'll find something to worry about. You get creative. Let's find something to worry about. Um, it almost is the picture of me of um, the question, what lies at the bottom of the ocean and twitches? A nervous wreck. It's kind of like you're at the bottom of the ocean. That's got to be the quietest place, darkest place, least activity on earth probably, and yet They're twitching because there must be something to worry about here. And so the picture of worry is one of those things that, if we think about it, uh, all of us deal with, to one degree or another, it's very much a part of life, and yet we sometimes don't think about it in terms of what the Bible says about it and how the Bible encourages us to respond to it. And just the whole idea of telling people, not to worry, it's almost like saying, don't think about chocolate. Because if you mention it, then you just reinforce it. It doesn't seem to help to say, don't do that. But that's actually what Paul says here in Philippians 4. That's what the Lord Jesus says in Matthew 6. And so the question is, how is that something that's supposed to be helpful and not just something that condemns us where we are? So let me read for us Philippians 4, and we'll talk about it and hopefully get some encouragement for our lives through it this morning. In Philippians 4.1, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, And if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full, and have an abundance. I am amply supplied having received from Epaproditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of God. So Paul writes this letter to the Philippians. Uh, Philippi was a city in Greece. And the church, we don't know exactly what the size was, but the size of the uh, city was about 15,000 or so. It was the first church Paul planted in Europe, and it was probably a church that was about 12 years old or so, and at the time that Paul writes this letter to the Philippians, he's actually in prison in Rome, and he does not know whether he's going to live or die. He thinks he's going to live. He thinks he's going to continue on, but at one point in the letter, he says, until I find out uh, what's going to happen to me, I'm going to send... Uh, Timothy and Epaphroditus back to you. And so even though he felt like he knew that he was going to get out of this situation, he still wasn't totally certain about whether or not he was going to live or be executed. And we know, according to Christian tradition, that he evidently was uh, put back in prison in Rome later on, even though he did get out of this uh, prison sentence. Uh, But ultimately he was put to death in rome at some point later on but he's in a position where he could be very anxious about what is about to happen and he's writing to the philippians and he writes a letter that is a thanksgiving letter because Epaphroditus comes from their church he's a member of their church and he brings to paul provisions because the only way people survived in prison was for people outside of prison to provide for them they they weren't doing what we do for prisoners in our prisons and providing food and workout equipment and everything else. That, what didn't happen back then, you were dependent on your friends and family outside to provide for you. And so Paul was being provided for through this church and he writes this letter, which is in part a thank you letter. But it's also a letter encouraging them to continue to be faithful to the gospel And that's why I say this letter does have some application to what we've been talking about in terms of sharing the gospel with people, because the theme of the letter is joy and the importance of joy and the reality that there are things that can undermine our joy and therefore undermine our witness as Christians as well. So let me just highlight for you what he talks about in this passage, and then we'll make some application uh, this morning. And I see that clock isn't working back there, so I better pull out my phone lest I'm here till two (laughs) o'clock. All right. Um, The first thing that I want us to see is he actually starts off, or the chapter starts off, chapter breaks weren't a part of the original letter, but the way this uh, is broken up is it's actually the conclusion of what he had said in chapter three, because it starts with therefore. And therefore... Uh, typically, can point backwards as well as forward and oftentimes can be a combination of the two. And he's pointing back to what he had already been talking about. And he's been talking about the fact that they um, are not to be enemies of the cross in the way they live, but they are to remember that they are citizens of heaven. And he says, so as citizens of heaven, uh, stand firm in the Lord. And so the whole idea Of citizenship was important in light of Philippi because Philippi was a Roman colony, and those who lived in Philippi were very proud to be citizens of Rome. It was part of their identity. And Paul is saying, Make sure your identity as Christians is primarily as Christians, as citizens of heaven, not simply citizens of a particular place on this earth. And so he encourages them. In light of that, and he goes on in verses two and three to actually encourage um, someone in their church to uh, help two ladies, two women, uh, reconcile. Um, the translation that um, the NASB has, "true companion," which some people think that might be actually a a, for, a um, proper name, uh, Zizagos. So it may be that he's talking about. This person in particular, but one way or the other, whoever it is he's talking about, uh, knew that Paul wanted uh, this person to help these two ladies to reconcile. There was some conflict between these two believers, real believers, who had helped Paul in the ministry of the gospel, and he was encouraging the church there to help them reconcile, which is a reminder that true believers can. Uh, be at odds with with each other at times. And we'll find out later on in the book of Acts that even Paul and Barnabas uh, separated over John Mark and whether or not John Mark was going to continue with them in the next um, missionary journey. Well, it moves from that discussion of citizenship and then conflict onto a discussion of the theme of the book, which is rejoicing. The command to rejoice in verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. And joy, again, to me is most helpfully defined as happiness in God. It's happiness in that which is unseen. God is unseen. And therefore, it's a happiness that isn't tied to what I see. It's a happiness in God. Sometimes we say um, happiness is tied to your circumstances. Joy isn't tied to your circumstances. It's not true. All happiness is tied to circumstances. It's just which circumstances are they tied to? The circumstances that my joy, my happiness is to be tied to is the circumstance of who is my God and what is he like and what has he promised me. That's my real circumstance, not just what's going on in this world. And so he encourages them to rejoice whatever they're going through. And then he gives them some counsel verses 5 through 9 which have to do with especially the issue of peace. In these verses there's a reference to the peace of God and to the God of peace and he's actually encouraging them to make sure their dependence in this life is on the God of peace. And another reason why this is important in terms of the background is that um, This is a period in history. There were 200 years in the history of the Roman Empire that they referred to as the Pax Romana, which means the Roman peace. It was a period of time where there was very little conflict, very little invasions, time of great prosperity. And so you've got a a church uh, that's in a Roman city in which they're enjoying, um, at least on an outward level, a great peace and prosperity. And yet, you can have that on an outward level and still not have peace inside. And he says the real peace isn't a peace that comes from the Roman government. It's not a peace that comes from the next election. The real peace comes from God. And so he's encouraging them to think about where true peace comes from because peace and joy go together. How often in scripture do we find joy and peace together in various ways? And so he encourages them to think about it in that way. And then he moves on to talk about the fact in verses 10 through 14 that he's rejoicing over what God has done through them in um, providing for him. But he starts off first by saying that, even if they had not have sent that gift, he would have been okay. Just got an interesting way to start off. He says, I don't speak from want. I don't speak from a position of being uh, totally left without resources. Even though he's thankful for what they sent, he starts off by saying, I've learned a secret. And the secret is whether I uh, have little or much I can trust Jesus to be sufficient for me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, of having abundance and suffering need. And so he says, first of all, I'm thankful for your gift, but I want you to know I was okay without it. Which is an interesting way to start off, but a very biblical way in acknowledging that God had not left him simply because he was in need. Christ was still with him. The Lord was near him, near to help, near to provide what he needed, even when he didn't have all the physical resources that he needed. And then he goes on in verses 15 through 20 to, to talk about the fact that he's truly thankful for what they sent, and he's especially thankful because it's going to benefit them, not only him, but they'll be blessed by God because of their generosity. And he says, no matter what, basically, you, you've had to give up to provide for me, my God will supply all your needs. God is going to supply your needs just like God has used you to supply my needs. That's why he says in verse 19, And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And then he concludes the letter by highlighting the fact that it's his heart's desire for the grace of the Lord Jesus to be with their spirit. And what does that mean? It means that he is praying that the truth that he's reminded them of and told them in this letter would be a means of grace for them. In light of whatever might bring them anxiety, in light of whatever might hinder their rejoicing, in light of whatever might keep them from continuing to share the gospel faithfully uh, to those around them. And so that's just a quick overview of what Paul does in this fourth chapter, but I want us to think about it and apply it a little bit this morning. And the first thing I want to do is draw your attention to the uh, definition on the screen here with regard to anxiety or worry. Anxiety and worry are the same thing. Um, Anxiety or worry is the inner turmoil of distracting thoughts and feelings that result from an unbelieving heart divided between God's will and our will because of a desire to control the future in light of what we may fear may or may not happen. So the first thing, first part of the definition talks about the fact that sinful anxiety is distracting. And if you're really worried this morning, you might be having trouble even focusing on me talking about anxiety. The anxiety itself may make it hard for you to listen to me talk about anxiety because you're thinking about things that you're worried about. It's an inner turmoil that distracts us with various thoughts, various feelings that distract us, unfortunately, from the truth of God and the promises of God and the things that we need to be giving ourselves to. Secondly, it's the issue of division. Um, And this is coming from the the way... The words Paul uses uh, have certain implications, and one of the implications is the idea of being divided. And so sinful anxiety and sinful worry is rooted in not believing God's promises and trusting God in the way we should, and it is the expression of a division, a division between what God wants and what we want, because The anxiety is over whether or not God's will is my will. Is God going to will and bring about what I want or not? And what if he doesn't? I really want this, but what if he has something else planned? So there's a division between our will and God's will going on in our heart. They're at war, so to speak. And then finally, there's the desire to control. Um, And it's the desire to control the future in light of what we fear may happen or may not happen. And we can have anxiety over both. Something happening or not happening. Um, Keeping the job or not getting the job or not, uh, whatever it might be. There's all kinds of things that can cause us to be anxious about the future. The word that Paul uses for anxiety here could also be translated "undue" or "or being unduly concerned." So it's not a legitimate concern or expression of concern, but being unduly concerned, undue concern for the future. It, at the heart of it is the idea that you want a certain future for yourself, or you want a certain future for someone else and the question is are you willing to submit to God's will or are you resisting God's will and hopefully as we go through this you'll see why I'm making that kind of distinction between the issue of having a desire for a certain thing to happen in the future and whether or not we're actually submitted to God's will or not Um, you think about Paul again he's sitting in uh, Roman prison, and he may or may not live, and yet he appears to be at peace with that uncertainty. It's interesting, if you go back and read Acts chapter 16, in, in Acts chapter 16, you find the account of Paul um, actually planting the church in Philippi. Uh, two famous stories are in that chapter, the conversion of Lydia at the place of prayer, and the casting out of um, the uh, fortune teller. Well, it's actually three. because also the Philippian jailer, but those are kind of meshed together. But at one point in Acts chapter 16, Paul casts a demon out of this slave girl who is a fortune teller or a future teller, which is kind of interesting because evidently she was related to um, the oracle at Delphi the word for divination, she had a spirit of divination. The word for divination means python, which is connected to the worship of the oracle at Delphi, and which was connected to the whole idea of being able to predict the future. And if you think about that, evidently, what that slave girl was all about and how she was bringing money to those who owned her was by trying to alleviate people's fear of the future. by telling them what's going to happen and so paul casts that demon out and it causes them to get thrown into jail and all of that happens as a result and so there's a lot in what we find in the story of um, the church in philippi and how it was planted that relates to what paul is saying here in philippians 4 let me just um, make some distinctions here we might ask questions like, "Are, are anxiety and fear and worry and nervousness all the same? Anxiety and worry are the same thing. If you go to Matthew 6, it's translated, do not worry. And that's the same phrase that we find in Philippians 4, for do not be anxious. So it can be translated either way. But fear typically is associated with present danger or at least present perceived danger. Whereas worry is focused on what possibly might happen or not happen in the future. It's like there's a a song uh, that Jan often listens to that I hear her listening to where it says, sometimes God calms the storm, sometimes he calms his child. So the idea of a storm obviously can be literal or it can be figurative. But if you're in the midst of a storm... Um, and you're you're disturbed. That's probably best to be considered fear. Fear is in the midst of the storm. But if you're disturbed because a storm might come, that would be anxiety. It's the possibility of the storm. That's anxiety. It's being in the storm. That is fear. Nervousness is the physical reaction to either one of those things, and it's usually related to a particular. Instance, But one of the question is, is all anxiety sinful? It's very interesting in Philippians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul says, For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. Be concerned is the same word for anxious in Philippians 4. So the word can mean just being concerned about someone's future. And that's not necessarily sinful. Uh, He's talking about Timothy being concerned for their welfare, being concerned for their future, being concerned about what's going to happen to them. You have concern for your kids. You have concern for your family. You have concern for people you love. That isn't inherently wrong. It can be a good thing. We should have those kinds of concerns. The question is, though whether or not that's moving into a sinful kind of anxiety that Paul is addressing in Philippians chapter 4. Another aspect of this that I'll just touch on is the fact that um, we can have feelings of anxiety. A lot of people will put things like panic attacks in this category. That can be related to things that are going on in our body because of medication we're taking, or because of other health issues that might be going on. So the feelings in and of themselves may not be sinful in themselves. There could be a physical source to some of the anxiety that people experience. But Paul is talking about the sinful anxiety that's rooted in the unbelief that we experience. And so he's talking about that. And the very first thing that I just want to highlight about this whole battle is in verse one he talks about them standing firm in the lord and he's talking about them standing firm in the lord in the context if you read the end of chapter three he's talking about those who um whose lives are enemies of the cross of christ and they're not living as citizens of heaven which is the implication that they're christians or professing christians who are very much focused on the things of this world. In verse 19, whose end is destruction. 319, whose God is their appetite and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. And so he's highlighting the fact, I think, in the context that part of our anxiety is that we are too worldly-minded. We're not heavenly-minded enough. This is actually reflected... Um, in Matthew 13, when the Lord Jesus talks about the uh, seed that falls among the thorns, he says, the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Now think about that. Worry can choke the progress of the word of God in your heart and in your life. In Luke it's actually translated "choked" to be choked with worries. The word of God can be choked with worries because we're so focused on the things of this life, the concerns of this life, that it actually hinders us in our walk with Christ. So that's part of what we need to realize is that when Paul brings up the whole issue of anxiety, he's bringing it up in the context of the fact that we can be too earthly-minded, And it can actually hinder our spiritual growth and our spiritual lives. But then he also brings in the issue of the conflict between uh, Yodia and Syntyche in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 4. And we don't know what the conflict was all about. Paul doesn't tell us exactly why they were having this um, problem. We don't know what was going on. But to me, it's interesting that Paul, right on the heels of that, begins talking about the issue of anxiety. And the question that I just want to raise, not knowing exactly what Paul is talking about there, but have we ever considered how anxiety impacts other people around us? Um, Someone has said, stop for a moment and think how many different sinful actions and attitudes come from anxiety. Anxiety about finances can give rise to coveting and greed and hoarding and stealing. Anxiety about succeeding at some task can make you irritable and abrupt and surly. Anxiety about relationships can make you withdrawn and indifferent and uncaring about other people. Anxiety about how someone will respond to you can make you cover over the truth and lie about things. So if anxiety could be conquered, a lot of sins would be overcome. So it could be that anxiety of some kind was a part of the conflict there. But either way, it's clear that the issue of anxiety can affect us in all kinds of ways. And so therefore, Paul says in verse 4, rejoice, which because he goes on to talk about anxiety implies that anxiety is a threat to our joy. We're commanded to rejoice, therefore do not be anxious. Anxiety can rob us of our joy. It's interesting, um, in Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas are thrown into prison, and um, they're in the stocks or whatever they are in, And it says they were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. Which means that they were fighting the temptation to be anxious about their circumstances by rejoicing in the Lord. And so to rejoice in the Lord, again, is to fix your hope for all you need and all you desire on God. And to fight to keep that as your focus. And so... All of this, I think, provides a little context for what Paul says about not being anxious in verse 6 when he says, very simply, be anxious for nothing. And nothing means nothing. There's no room for anything to be sinfully anxious about in light of what we've said so far. Um, That picture there is a picture of a just a fictional character, of course, named Alfred E. Newman. When I was growing up, I had an uncle who liked Mad Magazine. I think it's still around, but he would buy Mad Magazine. And this character is on the cover of Mad Magazine. But the image and the phrase, What Me Worry, actually comes um, into history prior to Mad Magazine in the late 1800s. And it was associated with painless dentistry. What? Me worry about going to the dentist? don't have to worry about going to the dentist. If there's anything that makes me anxious, that's going to the dentist. And so the picture is a picture of what? Me worry? Why should I worry? Is there anything that I really have to worry about? Now, a a lot of us would say, yes, I think I have plenty to worry about. But God says you have nothing to worry about. It's a totally radically different perspective on life. And that's why in Matthew 6, and we don't have time to read Matthew 6, but if you go back and read Matthew 6 and the Lord Jesus' comments on God's care for the birds and the flowers and how the Lord Jesus over and over again says, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. He goes on to say, who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Goes on from there and says, You have little faith. Now, he doesn't say, You have no faith. It's better to have some faith than no faith. But he does say, You have little faith. Because, don't you know that your father is taking care of you? He's promised. He's promised to the point of saying, May I die if I don't take care of you? I've covenanted with you to take care of you. He says, do not worry about the things of life. He says, seek first the kingdom and all these things will be added to you. Do not worry about tomorrow. See, worry is fixated on the issues of tomorrow. But at the heart of what Paul is saying here is the issue of God. Because he says... In verse 7, if we uh, do what he tells us to do, the peace of God will guard our hearts and our minds. And in verse 9, the God of peace will be with us. And what he's emphasizing there is the reality is that the peace we need is a person, not a circumstance. In order to have the peace of God, we need the God of peace. Now, as Christians, we know that on the one hand, God is everywhere. The Lord is near. He's near to help. He's near to provide and protect. But we also know that he can manifest his presence so that we know that he's near, that he's with us in various ways. And when he talks about the God of peace being with you, He doesn't mean that God's going to show up and just, be physically there in some sense that he wasn't before. He's saying, you will experience the God of peace. If you embrace what I'm telling you, if you'll use the means that I'm giving to you, you will have the peace of God. You will encounter the God of peace. It's interesting. John Bunyan wrote about uh, the Holy War and he talks about um, Mr. God's peace. And Mr. God's peace is, um, I can find it here real quick, is a character in the story who is the governor of what John Bunyan calls Mansoul, the city of Mansoul. And what he says is that the Prince Emmanuel appointed Mr. God's Peace as the governor of Mansoul. And he says about Mr. God's Peace, he was not a native of the town, he came down with his prince from the court above. The kind of peace that's being talked about here is not a peace that you can get by just living in a secure Roman colony. It's not the peace that you can get by just having a little more money. It's not the peace that you can have about just not being in prison as, as opposed to being in prison. It's the peace that only God can give. And that's why Isaiah 41 says... Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. The Lord Jesus, night he was betrayed, says to his disciples, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. What kind of peace does God have? Is God anxious over anything? I don't think so. He has no reason to be anxious. Jesus says, Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Do you realize it's we're responsible not to let our heart be troubled? We're responsible not to give in to worry and anxiety. And so therefore, Paul tells us what to do in order to depend on the God of peace for the peace we need. And so in verse 6 he says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God. So he says instead of simply rehearsing all that you're concerned about, one of the things that's interesting about the issue of imagination, imagination can be a good thing or a bad thing. We can imagine All that God has prepared for those who love him. But we can also imagine all the things that can go wrong. And that's what worry does. It just uses our imagination to imagine all the things that could go wrong. And Paul says, take those imaginations and pray. And and lift up your heart to God. Pour out your heart to God and tell him what you're concerned about, what you're worried about. Is it because God doesn't know? No, because you need to put your finger on it. You need to name it. Name what it is that is disturbing you, and you're to lay it at the feet of Jesus and ask him to take care of it. But he says to make your desires known, make what, make what, you want for the future known to God. Tell him what you want the future to be for yourself or for your kids or for your country. Make your desires known, but do it in the context of supplication and thanksgiving. Well, he says prayer, supplication, and thanksgiving. The idea of supplication and making a request known is basically the same thing, expressing your desire. But the word for prayer is much more general And has the idea of basically submission. Prayer fundamentally is not my will, but thy will be done. And so I make my desires known, but I at the same time say not my will, but thy will be done. And I thank God for all that he's already provided. I thank him that I can trust him with the things that I am concerned about so we need to pray about those things that's why it says in first peter five humble yourselves under the mighty hand of god that he may exalt you at the proper time casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you and in the context it says beware be on the alert because the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour to devour who person who's not casting his anxiety or his care upon God. That's the actual context there. And so we're to fight our anxiety by being honest with God about the things that we're anxious over, but submitting our will to his will. But he also says in verse 8, he says, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Instead of dwelling on all the things that could go wrong, dwell on all the things that are true and good and right. And that's going to basically mean dwelling on the word of God and dwelling on things that help us think about the word of God, whether it's songs or Uh, writings, whatever it might be, anything that exalts the truth of the word of God in various ways, in song, in poetry, actual scripture, obviously, whatever will help us keep the truth in view. That's why it says in Colossians, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Otherwise, maybe just worries and cares will richly dwell within you. If you're not giving yourself, if I'm not giving myself to the truth in various ways. Then he says in verse nine, these things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. I'm putting all this together because he starts off by saying, do these things and you will have the peace of God He goes on to say, and the God of peace will be with you. So I think all of these things related to the issue of having peace. And what he says is, yes, we need to pray. That's crucial. Yes, we need to focus on the truth. That's crucial. But he also says it's crucial to be doing things. Not just sitting around worrying. Not just sitting around thinking about all the things that could go wrong. What are we to be doing? We're going to be doing what the Bible tells us to do. We're to be thinking about what does God tell me to do today? What does God tell me to do for my family, for my workplace? I'm to be giving myself to the things that God tells me to give myself to. He says, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So all of that, both prayer, the word, and actually giving my life to what God calls me to give my life to, It's all about fighting the anxiety that we have about the future. But let me wrap this up as as succinctly as I can. The rest of the chapter, I think, applies as well. Because what he does is, in the next two sections that we talked about, he highlights two things that God promises us. And these are the things that we are to trust God for in light of our anxiety. In verses... um, 10-14, he talks about learning the secret of being filled and going hungry. Now, if you're sitting in a prison cell and you have nothing to eat, you could be anxious about whether or not you're going to get anything to eat. And yet, Jesus said, don't be worried about uh, whether or not you're going to get something to eat or not. Why? Well, Paul says, not because I can trust that God will always give me a meal three times a day. What he says is, I can trust that Jesus will give me the grace for having a meal or not having a meal. He says, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul had a thorn in the flesh some kind of physical thing. A lot of people believe. But whatever it was, he asked God to remove it. Jesus says no. But he says, my grace is sufficient for you. I'm not going to give you what you ask for, but I will give you what you need. And what you need is my grace. And I will give you the power. I will enable you to trust me and to love in this circumstance. And so God promises us the grace we need to honor him, to trust him, and to love him in whatever situation we're in. And that's important. I mean, in Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas were beaten with rods. You, you suffer like that, and you sing songs afterwards, and it must be because you're trusting God for what you need in those difficult circumstances. But in the following verses, he also talks about the promise uh, provision. So we have the promise of power. We have the promise of provision, which was illustrated this morning in the Sunday school class where the children talked about God providing for the 5,000, which was probably 10 or 15,000 people, 5,000 men. And God provided. And so God calls us to trust him for what we need, to provide what we need. As it says in verse 19, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So he will provide what we need for his glory and our good. Now you have to put that in context. Paul talks about going hungry. So that doesn't mean we will never be in any kind of need, but it means that God promises to give us what we need in that way whenever we need it. God is at work doing all kinds of things. He's the perfect multitasker, but he promises us to give us what we need in that hour. Well, let me just kind of wrap this up. The important thing is to realize that ultimately anxiety is an issue of unbelief, sinful anxiety. We're not trusting God for what he's promised us as we need to, and we need to fight to pro, uh, trust his promises. One way someone has described this fight is you're driving down the road and someone's throwing mud on your windshield. And you whip out the promises of God. And those promises are like your windshield wipers, trying to clear the way so that you can see and so that you're not in the dark and you're not f- freaking out because you can't see what's going to happen and you're afraid of what's going to happen. So you whip out the promises of God that are working on the windshield. But, he says, the windshield fluid is like the Holy Spirit. You pray for the Holy Spirit to make those promises effective on your windshield. So that it's not just scraping the mud and spreading it around, but you, you're looking at the promises of God, you're dwelling on the promises of God, and you're praying for the Holy Spirit to apply those promises to your heart, to clear the fog away, so that you can focus on the God of peace. Because what you want to see is not your circumstances. You want to see the God of peace over your circumstances. And you want to trust him because he says, I love you. I love you. I love you. I will take care of you. I will take care of you. I will take care of you. Trust me. Trust me. Trust me. That's what God tells us. And so the last thing I'll just mention is, I've thought about this a lot lately. It's been kind of a mantra for me. Uh, Trust and love and do the next thing. My goal each moment is to trust God's promises, to love by doing what he calls me to do. And that's a one step at a time thing. What is the next thing I'm supposed to do? I fight anxiety by trusting and loving and doing the next thing. Elizabeth Elliot made popular a poem that many of you have heard before, which says, From an old English parsonage down by the sea, there came in the twilight a message to me. Its quaint Saxon legend, deeply engraven, hath, it seems to me, teaching from heaven. And on through the doors the quiet words ring, like a low inspiration, do the next thing. Many a questioning, many a fear, many a doubt, hath its quieting here, moment by moment let down from heaven. Time, opportunity, and guidance are given. Fear not tomorrow's child of the King. Trust them with Jesus. Do the next thing. Do it immediately. Do it with prayer. Do it reliantly, casting all care. Do it with reverence, tracing His hand, who placed it before thee with earnest command. Stayed on Omnipotence, safe neath His wing. Leave all results, do the next thing. Looking for Jesus, ever serener, working or suffering, be thy demeanor. In his dear presence, the rest of his calm, the light of his countenance, be thy psalm. Strong in his faithfulness, praise and sing. Then as he beckons thee, do the next thing. Worry can be distracting. Worry can be dividing. Worry can cause us to seek to control the future. God says, no, you need to trust my promises. Trust my sovereign goodness. You need to give your life to what I've called you to do. And you're to focus on doing the next thing in loving people around you. And that's how we fight anxiety. We're not going to fight it perfectly. Uh, we will have to fight it every day. You don't overcome it. It will be something you fight the rest of your life. But the ultimate conclusion is, as it says in the song, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, and to know, thus saith the Lord." Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him, o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us. We all fight the temptation to be anxious, to worry. We pray, Father, that you would help us to see the importance of fighting it, that it impacts our relationships, impacts our joy in you. It hinders us in our spiritual life in all kinds of ways. And so we pray for grace to think about what your word says, and we pray that you'd help us to apply it to our lives. Whatever we might be anxious about this morning, whether it's family issues, job issues, health issues, uh, issues in our country, whatever it might be. We pray, Father, that you would grant us grace to fight for our joy in you, for the glory of your name and for the good of those around us and for our own good in you. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen.